Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. For those of you that are new, my name is Kay Hoppy, and I am the founder and owner of Kay Hoppy Presents, and I have been doing a podcast series on the CCRN Review for quite some time now. For those of you that have been listening, welcome back for another episode. I have one big announcement, and that is my online CCRN review will be made available on April 11th, 2022. So if you are interested in purchasing my online CCRN review, please head over to my website, which is khoppypresents.com. And I will also put in a link for you to be able to uh, head over to my website as well. So sorry, I haven't been doing much podcasting. Like I said, I've been really uh, investing my time in working on the online program. So today we are going to continue on with respiratory And as I said, for those of you that are new, welcome. We have the whole cardiovascular system done. You might want to go back to those podcasts and check them out. For those of you that are through the cardiovascular and into respiratory, today we are going to talk about pulmonary embolus. So let's start out with just a brief definition. Pulmonary embolism is really a complication of venous thrombosis rather than an actual disease. And there are some other definitions that go along with pulmonary embolism, including massive, the term massive PE, submassive, and low risk. So let's just take a moment just to start out with and define those terms. A low-risk PE is a patient that has acute PE with normal levels of biomarkers, there is no systemic hypotension, and there is no RV dysfunction. So RV dysfunction is a huge indicator that tells us about, you know, how the patient does in the long haul. So with low-risk, we don't have RV dysfunction. Then there's submassive, which is acute pulmonary embolism in which the patient does have right ventricular dysfunction, but no systemic hypotension or signs and symptoms of cardiogenic shock. 
And then lastly, the term massive PE refers to the patient that has an acute PE with RV dysfunction, sustained hypotension, and cardiogenic shock. So obviously this is the patient with PE with the highest mortality rate. So when we look at, or when we talk about the symptoms that the patient is going to have, it's really totally dependent upon the extent of the PE and the amount of cross-sectional area of pulmonary vascular bed that is occluded by the PE. Sometimes we even have a spraying effect of PE, and this might be from somebody that's immobile that comes up from the pelvis, for example, a big spray of PE where there are multiple. So it really, you know, symptomatology is going to be based on the amount of cross-sectional area of the pulmonary vascular bed that is blocked or not receiving flow. So when we talk about a massive PE, sometimes people use the term uh, saddle embolism. And a saddle embolism is typically where you have this big, huge clot that is sitting in the right ventricular outflow tract where it bifurcates into the right and left main pulmonary artery. And it just kind of sits on that bifurcation like a saddle. It's really unusual to come across somebody in the critical care environment that has survived saddle embolism because the mortality rate is very high. So it's kind of an unusual thing to come across a patient like that. Now, where do most of the PEs come from? Most of the PEs come from deep vein thrombosis. And so we're talking about calf, popliteal, femoral, uh, DVT, or it could be in the pelvis. Now, statistically, DVT that are found in the calf are less likely to become mobile when compared to DVT that are located in the popliteal area on up. But one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that calf DVT can propagate into the popliteal area and then break off and become a PE. So we shouldn't like take safety in the fact that, oh, it's only a calf DVT because it can propagate up into the popliteal area. Now, what are the risk factors for PE? We have major general surgery or trauma, which really they're kind of the same thing, right? Trauma is no more than surgery that you pay for and consented to. Also, previous DVT is a risk factor. Immobilization, definitely. Malignancy, you have a two to three-fold risk of DVT and PE. Heart disease. So more than 50% of patients with chronic heart failure show or demonstrate PE on autopsy. Very interesting, right? Leg paralysis, uh, patients over the age of 40, obese patients, patients uh, taking estrogen therapy, um, women on the pill who smoke, for example, and then pregnancy and postpartum. So a sevenfold increased incidence with two thirds occurring in the postpartum period. So these are some of the risk factors. And 
you probably have heard of Virchow's triad of factors that predispose people to the development of DVT and the possibility of PE. And the components of this triad are, number one, the patient has a hypercoagulable state. So what kinds of things can make a person hypercoagulable? Malignant neoplasms, smoking, pregnancy, obesity, estrogen therapy, sepsis, trauma, surgery, um, all of those can, especially trauma and surgery of the lower extremity can make you uh, hypercoagulable. But trauma or surgery due to endothelial injury, which is the second component of the triad, can also make you predisposed to the development of DVT and PE. So we said the first component of Virchow's triad is a hypercoagulable state. And then I want you also to think, I'm going to take just a a moment and say, I want you to think about the patients that are hypercoagulable. And I want you to think about our COPDers, our blue bloaters, for example, um, the patients with chronic CO2 retention and chronic hypoxia that have H and H that are very high. So hemoglobin and hematocrit levels are very high such that, you know, you look at their H and H, it's real elevated because they need increased oxygen carrying capacity. But on the flip side of that, it's like they're pumping around sludge that makes you hypercoagulable. So that's component one of Virchow's triad. Component two of Virchow's triad is endothelial injury. So anything at all that causes damage to vascular endothelium, vascular endothelium. So it could be central venous line uh, insertion or instrumentation, hypertension. We talked about this with the cardiovascular system saying that hypertension results in vascular endothelial injury resulting in atherosclerosis. So that is another factor that can cause um, deep vein thrombosis, especially in the lower extremities and patients with peripheral vascular disease. Stasis is the third component of Virchow's triad. So we have hypercoagulable state, endothelial injury, and now stasis. So anything at all that causes immobilization, paralysis, Atrial fib, we talked about it in the cardiovascular section, that atrial fib causes stasis of blood in the atria. And we also talked about statistically, if left to themselves, that's the key part of it, if left to themselves, no anticoagulant therapy, no antiarrhythmic therapy, they remain in atrial fib about 30 to 35% of those patients are going to go on to develop a clot and stroke. And that's why it's so important that when we cardiovert somebody in atrial fib and try to get them out of it, we first look using transesophageal echocardiography to see if there is a clot in the atrium first so that we don't dislodge that and propel it up to the brain uh, during or after cardioversion. Long distance travel, well, that's going to be a form of stasis as well as venous insufficiency. About 90 to 95% of PE occurs in uh, the deep leg, deep leg veins. 
The most common source of clinically significant PE are the proximal leg veins, which I mentioned before, popliteal area and above. 20% of calf DVTs, they're going to propagate into the thigh and at that point can result in a PE. And let's not forget about indwelling lines and pacing wires that may be the origination point for thrombi in the right heart chambers. Now I am going to take a little moment. We're about halfway through our PE section. I am going to take a moment and give my CCRN online program one more plug and just ask that if you think that this program would benefit you to head over to uh, khoppypresents.com in order to look at that online program. I would really appreciate it. Okay, so let's move on to ventilation and perfusion. So when we have a patient with uh, PE, we clearly have a perfusion problem, right? We have clots that are causing... Um, disruption of flow. So it's a perfusion deficit. And what we wind up when we do a VQ on somebody with PE is we find that they have a high ventilation to perfusion ratio. So they have ventilation in excess of perfusion. And that's very different from, for example, from a patient that let's say has heart failure and their alveoli are full of fluid they have low ventilation to perfusion. So anyway, you'll have a high VQ in PE, although that is not the best test that we're going to be using for identifying pulmonary embolism. We're going to take the patient to the CT scanner. And for the purpose of the CCRN or PCCN exam, we're going to keep in mind that the gold standard for identifying PE is pulmonary angiography. And the reason for that is, is pulmonary angiography is able to pick up the most distal, some of the most distal PE that would not be able to be seen on CT scanning. So let's get into how the patient presents. And one of the sad things about PE, I mean, there's lots of sad things about it, but one that stands out is the fact that 42% of PE is picked up on autopsy. In other words, we don't identify it and, you know, the patient dies. And uh, why is that? Why aren't we picking up on it? Well, when you look at the presentation, you can see that the presentation can be just about anybody. For example, anxiety is seen in 60 to 70% of patients with PE. Well, anxiety can apply to a lot of things. Dyspnea at rest or with exertion, 73% of the patients. Well, dyspnea at rest or with exertion can apply to many different things, can it not? Cough in 34% of people, again, it can apply to a lot of different subsets of patients. Now, possibly this cough might also have hemoptysis. We see a patient that's tachypneic has tachyarrhythmias. And here's the clincher down here. And that is about 41 to 44% of them talk about lower extremity pain and you see inflammation or there might be edema. That's a pretty good thing to kind of lead you down the path of pulmonary embolism. 
they will have two plus pillow orthopnea. In other words, if they don't have two pillows to sleep with, they can't breathe. They can't lay flat. They need to have two pillows. That's about 28% of the patients. 21% of the patients will come in with wheezing. Some will come in with a new onset of a right bundle branch block and the axis will be pulling to the right. And that's because of acute right ventricular dilatation. And what we see with a right axis deviation is when you look at the main deflection of the QRS complex in lead one, the main deflection is going down, which is not normal. And the main deflection of the QRS complex in lead two is going up, which is the normal deflection of the QRS. So if you just can imagine a 12 lead EKG and the way that it prints out over on the far left hand side, just think about how it prints out. It prints out lead one, two, and three. So for a right, um, a right axis deviation, I said that the QRS is mainly deflected negatively or pointing downward in lead one while it's pointing up in lead two. So really the way that you can remember this is that in leads one and two, the QRSs are, po are pointing right at each other. You get it? Right at each other. Right axis deviation. We may see ST and T changes in V1 and V2. And those changes are indicative of right ventricular strain. Cyanosis, crackles may be present. We may see petechiae, particularly common in fat embolism. And then sudden shock in PEA, which is in 8% of the patients, which definitely we all stand up and uh, can recognize. Well, if it is not PE, what other kinds of things can it be? Well, let's take a look at sepsis, perhaps, acute lung injury, pneumonia, aspiration, heart failure, transfusion-related lung injury, transfusion-associated circulatory overload, coronary syndrome, cardiac tamponade, decompensated pulmonary hypertension, constrictive cardiac disease, valve disease or aortic dissection. So you can see in looking at this, holy smokes, there's a lot of things that can cause symptoms that are very similar to pulmonary embolism. So a real important thing to keep in mind is that the patient's hemodynamic status remains the single most important prognostic indicator for patients with PE. Short-term mortality for patients that have no hypotension or right ventricular dysfunction, about 2%. Mortality is 30% when shock is present and 65% in the case of the patient with cardiac arrest. And this information is taken from the Washington Manual of Critical Care. So our number one intervention is prevention, of course, right? So early ambulation and range of motion, getting TEDs and SCDs on, repositioning the patient frequently, avoiding extremes of knee or hip flexion, getting the patient, you know, breathing, deep breathing, coughing, 
anticoagulation, prophylactic anticoagulation in certain cases, uh, adequate fluid intake, and uh, that should at least get us underway in terms of preventing PE. Now, when we talk about management, we're looking at O2SAT, okay, and we're looking at supporting ventilation, right, which could indeed mean intubation and mechanical ventilation um, if the patient becomes fatigued. And depending upon the type of embolism that we're dealing with, of course, anticoagulation needs to be incorporated. And the reason why I'm being specific here is because if we're dealing with a fat embolism, we're not going to be using anticoagulation for those people. We're going to be using fluid and steroids and and BiPAP and possible intubation if needed, but we are not going to be using anticoagulation in patients as a treatment for fat embolism. We also want to, again, with anticoagulations, of course, we're arresting the thrombus. We also want to consider whether or not the patient might be a candidate for thrombolytic therapy. Now, Thrombolytic therapy may be indicated for massive PE with refractory hypoxemia or right ventricular failure. The patient's clearly hemodynamic comprom- uh, hemodynamically compromised, and you're not able to turn things around. So this is a patient that is headed south hemodyna- hemodynamically very quickly. And so Ultiplace is the thrombolytic that needs to be considered at this point. And we need to also keep in mind that once it's administered, the patient is at risk for bleeding uh, for the following 36 hours. Now, what if the patient's not hemodynamically compromised, so we're not going to use Ultiplace, TPA. Let's say we have a patient that... uh, is not able to tolerate anticoagulation. So maybe they have a blood dyscrasia, a bleeding tendency, or whatever. And so what else can we do for patients like that? Well, now we have to prevent emboli coming up from the pelvis and lower extremities. We have to prevent them from reaching the heart. And this is where a green field, also called an umbrella filter, comes into play. So if a patient is not able to be anticoagulated, a green field or umbrella, it really does look like an umbrella when it opens up, actually is situated in the inferior vena cava and it catches, it traps clots coming up from the pelvis and lower extremities. Now, the first thing that comes to people's minds is, can I clot off that umbrella? And the answer is absolutely you can. But what we're hoping is that as clots are thrown up to the the umbrella and get stuck in the umbrella, the body's fibrinolytic system, in other words, our body's own clot-busting system, will break down those clots before we get to a point where we get, you know, a huge spraying of clots or an umbrella that gets clogged. Now, the uh, Greenfield filter, like I said, the umbrella filter, some, 
Um, some other different devices include a bird's nest filter, same principle. It's put in the inferior vena cava. And again, the purpose is to entrap clots that come up, come in or come up uh, from the pelvis and lower extremities. Now we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to end with how fat emboli behave a bit differently than blood clot emboli. So when you think about fat embolism, probably the first patient population that comes to mind is the ortho patient. And when you break a long bone or a pelvis, you have marrow and fat that can gain access into the venous vascular bed. And really, it does not cause an obstruction. It causes massive inflammation. So right here, just let me say that a blood clot PE is obstructive, whereas a fat embolism is inflammatory. And that's why it is when a fat embolism makes its way into the vascular bed, it causes widespread systemic inflammatory response. It's very damaging and inflammatory to vascular endothelium. And at the pulmonary capillary alveolar interface, when the pulmonary capillary become inflamed and leaky, now you have a patient that goes into ARDS. So it's really important when we're talking about prevention of fat embolism to immobilize long bone and pelvic fractures because that is, you know, not immobilizing them, okay? Not immobilizing the fracture is what can cause the leakage of fat into the vascular bed, which can result in widespread inflammation. So early immobilization of long bone fractures, oxygen therapy. If the patient becomes refractory to oxygen therapy, so you're going up and up and up on that oxygen and your patient's not getting any better as far as their saturation, you have to use positive pressure. So positive pressure, when a person's not intubated, of course, is used in the form of BiPAP, whereas if a patient is intubated, we use PEEP. Also, steroids to decrease inflammation are used in fat embolism. And again, in the presence of pulmonary edema, we could also be looking at diuretic therapy. Well, this is it for my PE lecture. The next time we get together, I will be talking about acute respiratory distress syndrome. Please head over to my website, khoppypresents.com, and take a look at my CCRN online program, which will be ready for sale on April 11th, um, 2022. And let me know. Uh, give me some feedback on your thoughts about it, and I will see you in the next podcast. Bye-bye.